0: Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and I am beyond honored today to be speaking with Mariam Kaba, a New York-born activist, grassroots organizer, and educator who focuses on the dismantling of the prison industrial complex. She's the author of many books, including We Do This Till We Free Us and her latest, No More Police, which she co-wrote with Andrea J. Ritchie. Kaba argues for the total abolishment of all prison and policing, and her work has provided tools and blueprints for many social justice organizations over the years. Kaba is the founder of Project Mia, which provides young people affected with violence, with community-based alternatives to legal proceedings in an effort to end juvenile incarceration. Today, we talk about her work, her love of books, and about the ways we can all be thinking about abolition. Miriam will be back on November 30th for our book club discussion of Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms by Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on today's episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. Listen, if you love the show and you want more of it, head to patreon.com slash The Stacks and join The Stacks Pack. The Stacks is an independent podcast, which means I rely on listeners like you to make the show possible every single week. In addition to your support, you earn perks like our monthly virtual book club, bonus episodes, and access to our Discord community and a lot more. If you'd like to be a part of this wonderful bookish community, please head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join us. Thank you to some of our newest members, Melissa Rodriguez, Jacqueline Fredette, DeAndra Martinez, Remica Bingham risher Alessia Vitale, and Madeline Moy. Thank you all so much and thank you of course to the entire Stacks Pack for your support. All right, now it is time for my conversation with the Miriam Kaba. All right everybody I'm really excited today. I have a, I I don't want to overhype too much, but I have a living (laughs) legend. Okay. I have someone who is like a thought leader on one of the topics that I am the most curious about in this point in my life. I have the one and only author, activist, organizer, (laughs) student currently. Uh, I have Miriam Kaba. Miriam, welcome to the Stacks. So, so happy to be here, uh,
1: Tracy. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm so honored. I have to let everyone know, just so you guys know, Miriam is a member of the Stacks back. Just I FYI. I She's am. a supporter of the show. She is a friend of the pod. It's just so great. I gave you like a quick, you know, super all hype intro. Do you want to tell folks a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. I'm happy to do so. Um, My name is Miriam Kaba, and um, I use she, her pronouns. I um, am coming today from um, Lenape land in New York City. I live in Manhattan, and I was born and raised here. Um, I am, it's a good question right now, what's going on with my life right this minute. I'm in school. Back in school full time after over 25 years of being out of school, I'm studying uh, for an uh, MS so a master's in library and information science. I am. I run a few couple of organizations, one is called Project Nia, which is an organization that I founded in um, 2009 when I was living in Chicago. Um, I lived in Chicago for over 20 years. I moved back home to New York City in 2016. Um, I run another organization with my friend and comrade Andrea Ritchie, which is called Interrupting Criminalization. We started that in 2018. I co-founded and have co-founded many different formations, groups, organizations over the years since I was 15 um, years old. So most of my adult life, I've been helping to build organizations for collective action, Um, I think is what I like to tell people. Um, Yeah, so those are just a few of the things that are on my plate. I'm currently working really hard on a deadline of getting a manuscript in that I'm writing with my friend Kelly Hayes, which is going to come out sometime next year. um, And that's due to our editor next week. So I'm dealing with a lot.
0: (laughs) Thank you for giving me so much time this week. Oh my gosh. I have like a billion questions for you, but I feel like the only follow-up question to that is how do you rest how do you tap into your creativity? How do you how do you find a way to be so active and still take care of you?
1: It's a great question. Um, I have to say that I'm not the good. I'm not a good person to ask the question of. <laughs> okay, I'm
0: one of those people too. Um, I'm, I'm like not- people are like, how do you balance? I'm like, I don't. I fuck up constantly, and then I have to like take a day off because I'm so tired.
1: (laughs) It's really, and I'm also an insomniac, which I tell people all the time. I've been an insomniac since I was a a teenager. So this is a longstanding thing for me. So I always say when, particularly when I talk to younger organizers and they ask me, well, how do you do all this stuff? And I'm like, well, I have at least probably eight more hours in the day than you do. like, And that tells you a lot about what's possible in a lot of extended time, but that's not Mm -hmm. a necessarily I would not I would absolutely not recommend that yeah. other people be insomniacs like please get your yeah. sleep please rest I'm hundred percent pro that so yeah so I'm not really good at um, being able to tell people how to manage uh, those things I, I do enjoy my life I'm very content in it I you know do things that I love to do that are fun um, and being in relationship and community with other people I love so um, so I'm not it's not a complaint it's just how I live
0: yeah. You're a full grown adult and you went back to school. I did. Why? Why was that important to you?
1: It's a great question. Um, I, I'm asking myself that right now as I'm.
0: <laughs> Finals are coming. <laughs> Finals are coming.
1: This is my last semester. Thank God. I cannot tell you. I'm relieved and happy to almost be done. Um, I have my first job out of college was uh, working at the County Cullen Library in Harlem. Um, as an information specialist at a library. And I have always loved libraries. I grew up in libraries. My mother um, was 20 or... 20 years old when she had me, or 21, and um, newly arrived to the United States did not speak English. And uh, we both spent all our time at the local library. My mom for English ESL classes, me for story hour and fun times. And I grew up basically as a latchkey uh, child. You know, I'm a real Gen Xer. And um, we spent so many after-school times at the library. Like, the librarians were our second mothers Mm -hmm. um, and parents and friends. Um, And so I've always loved libraries, like, in a visceral way that's about um, kind of human connection and possibility. And as I got older, I recognized, like, the library as a third space in our culture where you can spend your entire day and not spend a dime Mm -hmm. is so such an anti-capitalist space possibility yeah. even though they are trying to overrun it under the capitalist logics but I want to maintain the space for public libraries the publicness of them mm-hmm. is what makes them magical and, pos- and and offers us inordinate opportunities for building the world that we want to build um so I love libraries for that reason so and I love books I love reading I've, this has been a lifelong thing for me and I um I just thought to myself, always in my back of my mind, I was like, Well, I am I'm, I'm probably gonna go to library school at some point. And then in my forties, I was like, Um, if I'm gonna do it at some point, I better do, do, it. It. <laughs> do it. And and uh, yeah, and, and as my fiftieth year was approaching, I'm like, I'm just gonna jump in. So that's how I am.
0: That's how do I Do you think that. that you'll want to actually work as a librarian? Or is it just like a set of skills that you wanted to have?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I feel like I um, I don't want to work as a librarian. I'm interested in archives and archiving. Okay. And so I went back to gain specific skills that I am going to apply to my own collections. So I've been a collector for a very long time um, of books and ephemera and movement materials and documents, and I have been wanting to figure out how to make sense of it, um, how to also activate my own collections so that they can be kind of publicly accessible Mm. uh, documents to many other kinds of people so they can use it in their organizing and in their work. Um, So those are the things that motivated me for wanting to go ahead. It turns out that I probably did not have to go to school to learn all <laughs> those things. I probably, I probably could have taken a few workshops, you know, like at yeah, the yeah. Society for American Archivists or some other place, but I did not know. I don't think I knew that when I right. signed up for this. Right, but, right, right. Oh, wow.
0: Well, I don't regret anything. <laughs> That's how I feel about my college experience going to college for acting. I think yeah. if I wanted to be an actor, I probably could have taken a few classes and been fine, but you know, whatever. Um, I know everyone's probably like, when are we going to get to abolition? Don't (laughs) worry, people. We're going to get there. We got a lot of time. I'm really curious about you, the person, because I feel like one of the things that I discovered in my research and my reading of you is that for a long time, you the person didn't really exist publicly. Mm-hmm. You sort of existed as like this idea and this like thinker and some of your work was there, but it wasn't always attributed to you on mm-hmm. purpose and you don't take pictures publicly. And I'm just like, I'm re- so people who see on the social media, you won't see Miriam's face in mm-hmm. the picture on the Stacks Instagram page. So I'm sort of curious, like, I know that in We Do This Till They Free Us, you talk about it a little bit. Mm-hmm. I just kind of want to hear you talk about why you felt like it was important to remove yourself sort of from the story and and why also you sometimes do put yourself back out. Like I was worried you were going to say no to this request Mm because I was like, I don't know, it's sort of like a Miriam show. So (laughs) talk to me about it.
1: It's a really I have um, I've struggled uh, over the years in part with the question of visibility and I'll say that I grew into becoming an activist and an organizer from a young age, mentored by people who always drove home the the concept that it was organizers in the back, leaders in the front.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you basically organized with and alongside people, and you were not the person who was up front. And I really internalize that. I internalized it to the point where I um, used to, and I still do, write a lot of curricula, zines, other things like that that I never attributed to myself. I never put my name on those materials. And then I would see many years later, those materials being used by other people. And I, and I knew I had made those things, but it didn't matter because my concept of thought around information and knowledge is that it is collectively produced to be used by the collective. And so Mm -hmm. I didn't have a sense of like ownership over those ideas because I know for sure that I have learned because other people have taught me or other people have made things that sparked a question or a thought in my own mind. So I was very big on the concept of kind of free information. Uh, and information activism from the perspective of just like, you make things, you share things, people use it, we build off of each other over time. So those two things kind of were part of my DNA growing up and became part of like my world, you know. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s, honestly, when, um, and this is a story that always occurs, I think, for all of us, a friend of mine um, we were working on a project together and I was like, oh, we don't, we don't need to sign, you know, we could just kind of put it out there. Like, it's not a yeah. big deal. We don't have to like put our names on it. And she was like, huh, interesting. She's like, Miriam, and she was a white person. So this is an po- important point. She said, it's interesting to me that for someone who is so committed to black folks, to the histories of Black people, particularly Black women, who has done all this work trying to excavate the stories of Black women throughout history, that um, you would erase yourself from history. Mm-hmm. Like, what's that about? And I have to say, it hit me in the solar plexus. I I literally gasped. I mean, I was it's not dramatic to say that. I was like, oh. because it had never occurred to me before to think about lineage in that kind of way, right? Yeah. To think about what I might have been teaching inadvertently to other young Black women, that I that my, my political view and my values around the importance of collective knowledge, the fact that you didn't have to be above anybody else, did not necessarily mean that I shouldn't attribute my own work, right, Mm -hmm. that I should, that I didn't, that everything I had done wasn't a labor,
0: that I hadn't
1: poured a lot into those things that, and why, and how would people trace lineage if they didn't know who wrote things, right, how would that even be, how would I, how would I also be able to be held to account for my ideas if nobody knew that I had written them, so those things really started me on a different journey. And I would say this to end on it, because it's a long involved thing that didn't just happen overnight. Right. I was working with a young person as I have for many years who had been in conflict with the law. And uh, he had been in and out of prison for a long time and he was out at this time. And um, he had learned through some sort of process about blogging when he was on the inside the last time. And we were just in a conversation. We were arguing on a political front. You know, it's like disagreeing mm-hmm. with him on something vehemently. He said, you know what, Ms. Kaba?" He's like, you need to write your own. You need a blog. You need yeah. a blog. <laughs> because you need to, like, get your all your ideas out to the public. Right? Like, you have yeah. good ideas. You should write them out. And I was like, I'm a Luddite. So it's really interesting to me. <laughs> like, I, you saw, I have a flip phone. Yeah. I'm like, you know, like, I'm on one social yeah. media. Like, I'm not whatever. So... Uh, So I was like a blog. I don't even know what I don't even know how to make a blog. How would I do that? Right. It was him who set me up with a blog through WordPress. And Mm -hmm. we were deciding and he said, call it, you know, you don't have to put your name on it. Because I was like, I don't want to put my name on, a, you know, like a blog. Like, it's so weird. And this was in uh, he started talking to me about it in 2009. And in 2010, I put out prison culture in my blog. Um, that was not obviously attributed to me by name. You know, I didn't have to put my photo on there, but I could just blog. And then he was the person who linked that blog to Twitter. So that's how I got on Twitter was through initially just like links to my blog, getting on Twitter. Wow. So that's, so that happened. And that was another moment where I put myself more out there publicly, but not, I still didn't name myself you know,
0: right, right.
1: Uh, officially. So all the, all that to say that it's been a process for me over time to become more comfortable with being more present in a public way for all the reasons I mentioned, which is that I owe it to other people to do that in some way, particularly as a Black woman um, yeah. and a Muslim Black woman and all the other parts of my identity where people can maybe see something reflected that gives them a little bit more courage to take a step forward. So that's how I started thinking about it more and got out of my own way, but I still hold all those same, like my public, you know, my private life is my private life. I right. don't talk about that in public. I'm not like, you know, I'm. those are the kinds of things I still hold. I still yeah. am uncomfortable with, you know, photos, videos, things like that. Um, you know, whatever. So it's just a process.
0: Yeah, I I find it really interesting just like from where you started about, you know, organizers in the back and leaders in the front, because I think that that's really shifted mm. a little bit. Like, and I and I just when you were saying that, I was thinking like so many organizers like of the civil rights movement who were in the back, who we've since learned about were women and queer people. And I just think about like. Yeah, of course. women organizers in the back, because that's where the ladies and the gays go, you know. And then it's like, but the leaders, they're in the front. And I just think about how now, so many leaders, at least the people that I look to, are black women, are queer folks, and like, and I and I distrust a leader who's not. Sometimes you know, like I'm like, I don't know, white guy, like. I, who are you with? Like, who are your people? Uh, So I feel like I'm glad that you made that shift because I do think that it's the shift that feels right for a lot of this work. It's like, I want to know who's organizing. I actually care less about who's leading. I want to know who's making it happen, who's pushing the thinking. Um, And so I don't know if that's like a generational thing or like, Mm -hmm. if that's just like, I don't know exactly what the shift is, but I definitely think about like Bayard Rustin and I'm like, yeah, they didn't want people to know about him. Yeah. And he was organizing. Absolutely. You know? <laughs>
1: Absolutely. So many uh, cases about that. And so many organizers I respect from the past who did believe that exact thing, which was, you know, Ella Baker is the is the kind of uh, most uh, visible now person that, that people can point to around that. But she was, you know, strong people don't need strong leaders. The notion that, um, you know, you can make your way in the world using your own power Mm -hmm. and connecting that power to other people and that that Mm -hmm. collective action is what will free us ultimately it is that's what's liberatory and so therefore she would she's there's a quote of hers where she says i did never you know did i hardly ever did interviews i did not put myself out in that way but you know what we've lost from that is um a whole archive of Ella Baker's thinking and her thoughts and the interviews that we would have been able to glean new knowledge from you know she wrote very little and I think a lot of her you know when Barbara Ransby did um to me one of my favorite books uh of, of recent uh decade is um you know um Ella Baker and the Black Freedom Movement and you know In order for Barbara to do that work, Barbara had to dig on so many levels in the archives to be able to Mm -hmm. really bring Mrs. Baker's voice to the forefront. People did not know, for example, that she'd been she was married for years. Right. Like you never saw (laughs) and didn't hear about her husband for a second. Right. Right. So so that it might. I think it is a generational shift in many kinds of ways. um, But that was those are a lot of the people that taught me were people who were like, nah you don't do that. Like you don't put right. your, you don't make yourself the story, you know? Yeah.
0: yeah. I'm glad things are changing. <laughs> um, you and I have something in common. Mm. You more than me, but we are not writers. Yes. You are not a writer not- and I am not a writer. Mm. I write once a month yes. and it is, the bane of my existence. Yeah. You write books and things. Like <laughs> I would argue that maybe you are a writer, but I love this about you. Can you please, as a person who has published books and has a blog and does write, explain why you are not a writer? Thank
1: you for asking that question. Um, I I am not a writer. I don't um, I don't obsess over writing as a craft. Mm-hmm. I'm not. Um, spending all my time like laboring over the. Uh, beauty and the uh, you know the pros of the pros and that is not that's I don't find that to be for me like exciting or Mm -hmm. like I don't get like particular satisfaction out of that
0: Mm -hmm. the reason
1: I'm I always say this I'm an organizer who sometimes writes I write for a very utilitarian reason which is that I'm trying for myself to make sense of what I think. So writing helps me to make sense of what I'm doing in the moment. So it's a selfish reason. It's why I've been journaling since I was a child. You know, Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. like to when I write stuff down, I reread it and it explains to me where I'm at, what's going on, what I'm doing. The second thing is that I constantly preach to younger organizers that it's really important to document your practice, that yeah. it is important for you to have something to say about what you're doing in the times that you're living in, and that that doesn't have to be a publicly available um, set of pieces of writing or thinking, but you should do it. And if if that documentation is just you talking into a type, uh, a tape recorder on a regular basis, totally fine. That's a perfectly valid form of quote writing, in my opinion, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so... That's why I don't, I'm, it's not a craft that I feel like I am actually, again, devoted to. It isn't anything part of my identity. I, I just do it. I'm like the, um, how do you call it? You know, with the the whistle as you work little people that like walk oh, yeah. in, like the do like, yeah. like <laughs> exactly, like making the widgets kind of thing. Right, that's, right, right, that's, right, right, right. That's how I see the writing that I do, it's like widget making basically.
0: Got it. Got Um, it. So it's just a tool for you.
1: It's a tool. It's a way, it's a clarifying personal thing for me. Uh, It allows me to get clear on what it is I'm doing, why I'm doing it. And I also see it as a way to communicate with other people about what I'm doing and what Mm -hmm. I hope they'll also join in doing with me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna get to abolition now, people. I know you've been waiting, so one of the things that I feel like speaking of like evolution of thought, I don't really think of this podcast as like a documentation, but obviously it is like when I think about it and in the last five years, which is basically how old the show is almost, I've started to like learn about abolition and like thinking about it, and you know, there was an episode in two thousand and nineteen I think that we did on um the cadaver king and the country dentist. Mm -hmm. And in that episode, I was talking to my guest and I was like, I don't think I'm an abolitionist, but like, I don't really believe in like prison or like, and I like listed all the things that I was like, these things should go. And like, but then I was like, you know, I don't know. And, and since then, you know, I've talked to people like Derricka Purnell, we've done blood in the water on the show. Like we we keep like kind of dipping our toes into abolition. And when I was reading, we do this till we free us. Also, I should say you have a new book out called No More Police. Yes. I sort of have buried the lead <laughs> oh, on that with no Andrea worries. Ritchie. Um, it's out in the world now, people, and it's really, really good. And, and we'll get to that, too. But there's there's not just one book. Um, <laughs> but you talk about abolition sort of as like frame it as like this a becoming like something that we do, something that we do until we free ourselves. Right. And like for me, that was the most empowering thing. Mm -hmm. Between that and then also my conversation with Derika, where she was like, it's about imagination. Like, you got to create it. You got to make it up. And like those two ideas, I felt like have allowed me personally to step into this space of like, I don't actually know, but like, we're going to work toward it. Yeah. And so all of that being said, first of all, thank you. Mm-hmm. But like with all of that being said, the one question that I continue to have, and I <laughs> struggle with this in my personal life with my children yeah. and I struggle with it big picture when I think about like the people who have done the most harm, like mass murderers or <laughs> something like that. Right. What is the difference between punishment and consequence? Mm-hmm. Because I'm not clear on it when it comes to tiny things with my kids. Yeah. So how can I be clear on it when it comes to someone who kills children in a school? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. so could you talk about that? This is really just a personal question for me.
1: Yeah. No, thank you for asking the question. I, um, uh, we talk about it briefly in no more police actually. Um, and, uh, I use some of the kind of wisdom of my friend Danielle Sered, um, who helps us to think through kind of more uh, granularly the difference between um, punishment and consequences, and I'm just gonna I'm just going to read a little bit of that. Wait. That's okay. So you just have yes. a little sense of it. Um, so it says here it's uh, page 259 of No More Police. Danielle Sered founder of Common Justice and author of Until we, Re- um, Until we Reckon, breaks down the differences between accountability and punishment in the chart reproduced below. Um, for accountability, she has, accountability is something you choose to do. Accountability recognizes and requires your power, including your power to enact repair. Accountability is fundamentally active. It requires you to address suffering you cause by seeking to transform yourself and to mend um, and rebuild for others. It also deepens relationship and connection, and it fosters healing and restoration. However, punishment is imposed by others with power over you. It aims to diminish or contain your power, which which it presumes can only be harmful is largely passive. This is incredibly important. So it requires you to address suffering you cause simply by suffering yourself with no path to provide anything to others. It severs relationship and connection and it fosters shame and isolation. So let me say this. Punishment is to me the most easy thing we can do. It's why we do so much of it. The reason for punishment is you don't have to, it's completely... The person who's doing the punishing that is active in that work, whether Mm. that person is the punisher, the state is the punisher, you kind of just do the thing. You don't need consent from the person you're punishing. You don't have to engage them in any sort of way. You can lock them Mm. in a cage forever. There's no work on your part to punish, right? Right. So that's why it's seductive. It isn't just seductive because you don't have to do any work. It's also seductive because it feels good. Now, this is the part where people go all ballistic on me. It's to be (laughs) like, when you say, I don't feel good when I punish people. Yes, you do. Oftentimes, you you feel a sense of either relief because you got Mm -hmm. that person. Because vengeance sometimes feels
0: good. So good. We are
1: human beings. It
0: feels so good. It does.
1: Somebody harmed you and you get a chance to harm them back. Let me tell you. We cannot ignore that. And I don't think as abolitionists, I tell people this all the time, you can't, you can't talk about an abolitionist future or an abolitionist vision without addressing how kind of uh, liminal, visceral pleasure people get mm-hmm. out of vengeance, which is why we mm-hmm. keep doing it over and over again. So saying right. all that is one thing, but the person who's punished is completely passive and right. they choose whether or not they are going to, quote unquote, take accountability in an active way for what they did. They don't have to give you anything. They don't have to give you an apology. They don't have mm-hmm. to do repair. You try mm-hmm. to punish them and you force them to do repair and they don't do it, right? These are all the things that happen along those lines. So if you're thinking of your child, and I, I made a, a toolkit a few, a couple of years ago called Against Punishment, and it's to work with children and young people in particular around punishment and punishment issues. When you tell your kids that they are punished and you send them up to a room and you tell them, go and and stay there, like, you know, and Mm -hmm. write 10 Mm -hmm. times, I will not do this again.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Do they do the thing again? Yes. Yeah. They absolutely (laughs) do the thing again. And then you're based on trying to escalate your punishments.
0: Right. To try to
1: figure out what is going to stop the behavior. You haven't even tried to address what the root cause of why that misbehavior is happening in the first place. You haven't done hard work of figuring out with that person. So let's talk about what's going on here. Why'd you do that? I don't know. No, I don't think you don't know. Were you angry at me? Did you want my attention? Was I doing something that didn't make you feel good? Did you have a bad day at school and you came home? You don't want to really talk about it. So you're acting out. What is the root cause of what the hell's going on here? Let's address that. And most likely you won't be doing this thing again. Or if you do it again, you'll realize that you did it again and you'll self-regulate yourself to make sure you don't, you know, keep making those mistakes over and over again. So those, so that's the kind of accountability as we talk about it in transformative justice and punishment as we talk about it in transformative justice. There's another layer and you ask that question. You're like, well, what's a consequence? Yeah. You cannot determine a consequence on your own
0: you have to have the conversation
1: not just have the conversation but other people have to be involved because guess what most of the times that harms occur harms don't just occur between individual people they occur within context of our communities and they also occur where other bystanders are around part of Mm. the reason we can't end rape culture is because it's a culture
0: it's not one
1: rapist and one survivor right right Right. it's a culture other people enable the harms to happen Those folks have to be brought in in some way around consequence decisions Mm. because what is going on here? So you you mentioned your husband and you and your children. When something goes wrong, in the ideal sense, you and your husband have conferred on what Mm -hmm. kind of consequences you think are reasonable for your children Mm -hmm. because you both have a stake in that. And if you don't talk about it, that's a friggin problem because it's not a given that you both agree. That the violation was this and that it deserved this level of punishment, Mm -hmm. if that's what you were using. Mm -hmm. So think about that in a broader societal sense. We don't all agree about what is a harm. For you, that phobia might be the worst possible harm that can happen. And for Mm -hmm. me, I may roll my eyes and be like, that ain't a big deal at all. Because it doesn't matter to me and it doesn't impact me. But our harms are, they're relative. according to where we think the thing is the most serious. So you mentioned mass murder. Okay, horrible. But are you feeling exercised by Exxon killing millions of people in different kinds of ways? Like, why is the systemic violence that institutions are responsible for, why do do those not elicit similar outrage of mass murders? Prisons, and Rikers has killed 17 people so far this year. Hmm. you that's not in the press as a mass murder, is it?
0: Right. It is right. a
1: mass murder. Right. If one guy down the street killed 17 people, I promise you that show would be on A&E and right. on TV and a, a Law & Order episode and whatever, and whatever. And five
0: podcasts. And five trillion <laughs> podcasts. Not five. Are you kidding? Yeah. Me? Right? So yeah.
1: in yeah. our mind, institutional violence does not exorcise us in the same way. Yeah because it gets obscured and interpersonal violence gets uplifted to like the worst possible thing ever. And I, I get why that is, but we should be thinking about consequences that are right sized for the situation. We should be asking ourselves if the consequences we're putting in are causing more harm than good. We should ask ourselves if we think we can end violence with violence. Like, can we, is it, is that the way, like, you think about worldwide, we do a bunch of wars, we kill people by the you know, by the thousands in our big what has happened as a result of that? Has that been good
0: is, right? Not good. We're we not have been, super helpful. No, we've drained the
1: resources <laughs> of the country. Thousands right. of people on our end are killed, millions of people on other people's ends are killed, and the cycle continues on and on and on. We haven't ended war, right? Right. So right. all those are things to think about. Now When somebody tells me, what about the serial killers and what about the rapists? I invite that question in the same way as I invite every other question that happens. And I want to ask people, yes, what about the rapists? Explain to me how the current system is ending rape. Right. I really want you to, like, are most rapists locked up right now? That's a question. They are not.
0: Of course not.
1: Right? There's something right. like 2% of people actually who are accused of rape and go through the system end up locked up behind bars. That mm-hmm. means 98% of rapists are not locked up behind bars today.
0: Right so now. when you tell
1: me the fear that you have that says, right. belong, I'm like, well, you're living that now. Right. But not we right. try something else, why right. not? This is not working. Right.
0: Right. So, so hearing you say this again, just reminded me that I heard you on Mark Lamont Hill's podcast last year, maybe two years ago. And and he, he asked you, I think about the same question. And I I think what you said, which is similar to what you're saying right now, which was a huge shift for me, Mm -hmm. was that it was like, well, what's your solution? And you were like, well, what we're doing right now isn't working, right? Like, we can agree on that. Like, Prison is not working. It's not stopping crime. It's not stopping harm. It's not stopping violence. It's not helping people who are sick. It's not helping people who are homeless. And that just that thing of like, oh, the system that we have right now is not working was enough for me to be like, okay, I'm ready to step into this and actually like think about this seriously because yes. I had sort of been playing with the idea of like I don't like the police but like yeah. what what's the solution yeah. and like thinking in this like very devil's advocate way of like well they don't have a solution yeah. they're telling me just to imagine yeah. and then when you said that yeah. I was like oh my god of course yeah. I know police don't work yeah I know prisons are harmful I know the death penalty is the worst to me it that is the worst harm on the it's face to me that's the worst yeah The death penalty is the one that I'm just like, that is where I entered the thinking of abolition before I ever knew that. Because I was like, look, I know that if someone killed my brother, I might feel like I want them dead, but I'm not the government. That's right. I'm not the representative of Miriam, of Listener A, of my mom, of your dad. I'm my representative for my family and my brother. And if you hurt my family, yes, I want you dead. And maybe I'll try to kill you. But- I don't want the government. And so like that for me made a lot of sense, but everything else was really hard. And when you said what we're doing now isn't working, I feel like that unlocked so much for me. Like that was the key to being like, okay, let's think about it. And I want to talk more about this like one-to-one thing when we talk about the book, uh, prison by by any other name because there there's a whole section on that and i think like we have a lot to dig into so i'm gonna slightly skip over that for today yes. but what you're saying about like now i want to say something yeah, about go ahead. It, yes, not, please the do. system
1: not working because i think what i mean by that if if i'm saying the word working is that the system is not serving those who are most harmed
0: yeah. I don't right? think you use the word working yeah, actually yeah. because I think what you probably said is the system is working as designed, it but it's not helping. Exactly. It's not it's, yeah. yeah, it's not reducing harm. Exactly. It's not reducing violence. It's not helping the people who need assistance. Exactly. It's not making life That's what you said. Yeah, I,
1: yeah. I no. don't want to put work because you okay. you
0: definitely were like, the system is working as it's supposed to be working, yeah. but it's not helping us. It's not changing uh, the needs to be changed. The system
1: is relentlessly and ruthlessly efficient at targeting the people it wants to target. Do you see? Yeah. We are not—I I love this, uh, this uh, kind of political and philosophical um, uh, theorist, a uh, guy named Stanford, uh, uh, Stanford Beer. And he says, um, the purpose of a system is what it does.
0: The purpose
1: of a system is what it does. Well, what does that mean, right? It's not, the purpose of a system is not what it says it's intended to do. It isn't what it claims it can't do. It is what it does. So if you stop thinking of all the things that are currently happening, right? Where people Mm -hmm. say, well, policing, we could just make it work differently and better. I'm like, but what is the purpose of policing? right? The purpose of policing is what it does. What does it do? And if you stop there and you ask, what does it do? Put it on the table. If you say, well, it prevents, uh, it it responds to the most serious egregious harms. Well, no. The New York Times just put it out there recently that uh, policing takes up that 4% of the time that police spend On is on violent crimes. Four percent of their time. What are they doing for the other? What are they doing? (laughs) Percent. You have to ask that question. And if you can't figure out what the answers are to that, your it's your Mm. imperative to figure that shit out.
0: Yeah. What else are
1: they doing? If we're being told that we're spending a hundred billion dollars a year on cops, and that that is keeping us safe, and everybody keeps saying to me the reason we can't get rid of cops is because of violence, and I say to you, well, they only respond to violence four percent of the time to violent crime then what the hell are they doing for the other ninety 90- six? so if you want to let's begin right. let's say about saying okay well then if they're only responding to that time four percent of the time then they can desperately be defunded and we can use those resources in other places and let's see what happens
0: yeah let's take 96 <laughs> okay. percent of their funding away Thank you Let's fund? start there. That's Maybe the, we won't abolish the police. Let's just start let's with ninety-six percent defund. I'm saying
1: let's start with fifty, which is yeah, what I put yeah. on the table in my, uh, you know, uh, New York Times uh, op, op-ed a couple of years ago. I was like, okay, you all are yelling at me about all this stuff. Right. I'm saying let's take fifty percent of their resources right. away from them and let's put those in other things. I'm saying are salutary, mm-hmm. and then you give me. 25 to 100 years of that kind of spending. And Mm -hmm. then let's see whether our society looks different.
0: I promise you it will. It will. Okay, we have to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel... Okay, we're back. We're, sh- we're shifting to books. I promise you, everyone, next week or at the end of the month, when we do Prison by Any Other Name, we're going to get to a lot more questions. We're going through all sorts of reform. All you reformists, get ready. We're coming for you. Okay. Miriam is bringing the heat. We're coming for reformists. Um, but we're going to do Ask the Sacks, which is where someone writes in, they ask for a book recommendation. This is from Dakota. Dakota said, I was wondering if you could give me a handful of recommendations of some nonfiction books. For nonfiction books, I really like to read about historical events events that tie into the world that we are living in today. Similar to Blood in the Water and Kill Anything That Moves, I'm not really interested in ones that discuss how great crotchety old white guys formed this country, which I'm sure I don't really have to worry about from you. But I just wanted to put that out there. Um, Okay, Dakota, I'll go first. I'll give you three and then Miriam can give you one or two or three, whatever you want. So the first one is a book that just came out this year that I was very not wanting to read. And then I read it and I thought it was very good, which is His Name is George Floyd by Robert Samuels and Toulouse Olu- Ren- Renipa. I didn't want to read it because I thought it was like some publicity grab. It was going to be icky. I thought it was going to be just like, I don't know, gross. Then I started reading it it's fantastic. They treat George Floyd like a U.S. president. They do his entire history. They find his family that was enslaved. They find out about the people that owned his family, who those who those white people were. They go through his whole life, the people that loved him. It's like over 400 interviews. I just thought it was really beautifully rendered. And I think that giving the giving the presidential treatment, if you will, to people who have impacted the nation in such a way is only fair, especially given that his impact also cost him his life. So that's my first one. My second one is one that I love so much that I haven't recommended in a while because I'm trying not to only push one book, but it's called (laughs) A Thousand Lives by Julia Shears. It's about Jonestown. It is incredible. Similarly, this book focuses a lot on on the women, the Black women who were the backbone of the people's temple, um, which most people focus on Jim Jones. This book really focuses on the people that were part of his community. And then the last one, which is sort of in the same vein, is Going Clear by Lawrence Wright, which is a deep dive into Scientology. And I just love that book so much. Mm -hmm. So those are my three. Miriam, what do you
1: have for us? That's a great question. I, I can't even tell you how many books I have running through my head right now that I'd love to <laughs> recommend. You can imagine. I'm constantly trying imagine. to get rid of books in my house. I have thousands. Um, I would say one that you might really enjoy is called At the Dark End of the Street uh, mm. by Danielle McGuire. I, rec- I really cannot recommend this book anymore. This book is the book that broke open for people the activism of Rosa Parks in the 1940s when she Mm. was supporting rape victims um, when she was a NAACP investigator and she supported a woman named Recy Taylor who was uh, raped uh, by a gang of white men. It may sound like this kind of like overly dire book. It's written in a way that helps you to understand that the civil rights movement was essentially from its beginning, the Black Freedom Movement, that's the modern period of time that we're thinking about, really started before the 60s, before the 50s, you know, Mm -hmm. in the 40s and the 30s. But that bodily autonomy of Black women was a motivating factor for people fighting back against Jim Crow and segregation. Mm. We didn't I mean it blew my mind, even though I can't I, wait that, to read this. Oh my God. Tracy, this is a book. When you read it, you're gonna you're gonna be like Miriam, you were hundred percent right about
0: this. Okay. I'm it, gonna order it as soon as it we're done shifts
1: today. Your, every perspective you've had on the Black Freedom movement of the of the mid-century. The other book I would recommend uh, to you is uh, a book called I've I've Got the Light of Freedom. Um, Mm -hmm. I've Got the Light of Freedom is a book by Charles Payne, who's a a professor um, of longstanding and was a mentor of mine at Northwestern University. Uh, Charles uses this book to explain to us what was going on basically in Alabama and in Mississippi, during the black freedom movement. And I, you, the reason I keep bringing up this period is because this period has such impact on us today, right? Mm-hmm. We, you, you wanted a nonfiction book that would relate. And you read, mm-hmm. I've got the light of freedom. You will feel so much hope. Because it's a book about organizing and organizers, not written Mm. in a way that is like a manual or a how-to. But through stories and storytelling, you really see how things are going with people. I think the last book I would recommend is something totally different. Um, It is called um, Spectacle. It's The Astonishing Life of Oda Benga. Um, And it's Mm. a book by Pamela Newkirk. And it is this incredibly amazing story of an African man who was used as a human zoo exhibit um, in the US. And it tells the story of race and racism from a perspective that I think a lot of people don't think about. He was from Congo. He was quote unquote, a pygmy. He comes from Central Africa. He is exhibited at the St. Louis World Fair in 1904. And it is just, it's a story about colonialism. It's a story Mm. about deep roots of anti-Blackness in the United States and the world. And it is, you will, it will stay with you. It will stay with you after you've read it. And you will just, first of all, if you've never heard of the human zoo exhibits, that will really, um, and it's a tragic life that he uh, ended up, uh, a very Mm -hmm. short life, um, which is not surprising based on the trauma that he experienced. But Mm -hmm. I think you would just, you're going to be moved um, by Uh the book.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Those are such good recommendations. Dakota, if you read them, you have to tell us what you think. Yes. And everyone else, if you want a book recommendation on the show, email askthestacks at the StacksPodcast.com. Okay, now we get to your books. Okay, <laughs> two books you love, one book you hate. Woo! Um,
1: two books I love. Well, I mean, I've already shared a few of them in the recommendations, yeah. but I think I come back to um Asada's biography, um, mm. autobiography. All the time, um, it's a book I love. I give out all the time to other people. I make recommendations to other people, um, and I love. Um, I was thinking about Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde. Mm-hmm. It's a book that I have on my desk now, and it just sits there. I I pick it up from time to time. I'm constantly thinking about it. Um, yeah, but I, I love I love Lord's poetry. I love Lord's essays. So those are two books I love a lot but that's not, they're not my, like, they're not the favorite books of all time, but they're the ones I love and I come back to. And then uh, one book I hate, I'll say hate, but I don't, now I've come to appreciate the book, but uh, Mm -hmm. it's Capital, Volume 1 by Karl Marx. I read that book four times before I finally got it. I read it once for school uh, in a class that I was taking as an undergrad, didn't get it at all. Read it in (laughs) graduate school with other people, didn't get it at all. Read it Again, in another graduate school setting, did not get it. And then read it the fourth time in an organizer setting. And finally, it clicked. So mm. um, it's a book I, I love to hate. Okay,
0: that's fair.
1: <laughs> what are you reading right now?
0: Anything? I'm Do you reading, have time to read? I read all the
1: time. <laughs> I, read the, I have probably four books right now sitting that I'm thinking about. One is called uh, a new book by Melanie Newport called This Is My Jail. And it's a history of um, Cook County Jail. Um, and it's just I don't know if it's even out yet, but I, I just got it. I pre-ordered it um, and I started reading it as soon as I got it a couple of days ago. So um, I love that book. I'm reading Ruha Benjamin's Viral Justice.
0: How is it? Is it amazing? It's, I'm obsessed with her. She,
1: it's really very oh, good. Man. I really appreciate what she's trying to do with the book. It's a mix between a story of her own life and how. Her own life ties to this kind of concept of connectedness, the ability to transform our conditions. It's really an interesting. I didn't. Mm. I'm surprised by what I'm finding in the book. So, uh, so that oh, okay. I'm definitely looking at that, and then I'm also reading a book I've been wanting to read, and I'm it just came out, and I'm thrilled, and it's called The Most Absolute Abolition, um, and it's a book by a guy named a uh, historian named uh, Jesse Osalsky. And it's about the vigilance committees during the Underground Railroad period of time uh, oh. and how enslaved people, Black people, basically, it's a story of how we freed ourselves and uh, kind of explodes people's notions of what the Underground Railroad was and was not. Um, I'm, I'm enjoying that greatly.
0: How do you decide what you're going to read next? Are you reading book reviews? Are you going to friends? Is it people that reach out to you asking you to read their stuff? Like, how do you? How do you decide what to actually pick up? All of it.
1: I get okay. books. Um, people send me a lot of books. Um, people ask me to blurb books all the time. Mm. Um, and so I, I get to read that way. I listen to New Books uh, Radio. Um, it's like a, a podcast of new books and authors talking about their new books. Mm. That's a way I find out, out a lot of so many books that I never would have heard of before. I get lots of recommendations from friends who are like, this is a book I loved and I'm reading. I I put that on my list. I have an ongoing running list of books I want. And then I have all the books I haven't read that I've just ordered and that are now hundreds sitting there I need to get through sometime in my (laughs) lifetime. Um, So those are (laughs) all ways I do that. I don't tend to read book reviews. Like, I don't find... I'm not interested so much in like the reviewers in a traditional sense, critics mm-hmm. kind of stuff. I'm more, yeah. i more like to pick things up according to what I hear it. if it's like an interesting thing to me, what gets sent to me and then uh, yeah. new books podcast.
0: I love that. I, I like to read reviews only after I've read the book. Yeah. That's my favorite. I like to be like, Oh, you're a, ter- you're an idiot. What do you know? <laughs> or like, Oh, what a genius reviewer. You agreed with me about everything. Um, you talked a lot about nonfiction. Do you read fiction? Are you a hardly. fiction person? Hardly. hardly. Same. Same. Yeah, hardly. I read um, nonfiction and poetry. Okay, got it. And do you ever do audiobooks?
1: Very rarely do I listen to audiobooks. I think my audiobooks are my podcasts. Got I it. listen to podcasts. Got it. Yeah.
0: And what is your ideal reading setup? Location, time of day, snacks or beverage, temperature? Where are you? What's going on?
1: I read everywhere. I read in my bedroom a lot. I read in my um, living room and I read in my office space. I'm reading on the train. Um, I'm reading on the bus. I'm reading all the time. I love to read. I think Mm. that it is revolutionary. The book itself as a technology is such a beautiful thing. And boy, Mm -hmm. um, of human creation, I don't know what we've made technology wise that equals and rivals a book. Mm, A book is more, yeah, a book is much more uh, revolutionary than a smartphone.
0: Yeah, wow. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite bookstore? I have so many. I love about two or three. (laughs) I
1: love Women and Children First in Chicago, one of my favorite Mm -hmm. bookstores out there. I'm a huge fan of Red Emma's in Baltimore. I love what they do. I'm a huge fan here in New York City of Blue Stockings, uh, which is in Lower Manhattan. Love, they're great, and they
0: have a delicious tea situation. They have their beverages Mm -hmm. are so good. (laughs) We
1: partnered. uh, My organization, Project Nia, has partnered with them to create a free store. Um, mm-hmm. where we, uh, we offer um, items that are mostly hygiene, um, mm-hmm. you know, small numbers of like things that people can eat that are houseless. Um, we also because our partnership is to create the free store for people who are just recently released from prisons and jails. They can go over there, they can get toothbrushes, you know, all that, and they work with the community in that yeah. way. Uh, that's so it's a really community center, even more so than just a quote bookstore.
0: Right. Right. And they also, if you're just there browsing, I love the like subject or like the titles, like the classifications, way they organize their books. It's like really specific. And it's like they made space for a lot of books that aren't in other bookstores. Exactly, which is so enjoyable. As I'm sure so you feel diverse. that way. Someone who reads a lot, it's yes. like I'm tired of seeing the same seven books Thank on you. everywhere. Exactly. And then it's like you get in their nonfiction section, and it's like Black Motherhood, and I'm like, this is beautiful. A dream. Beautiful this is a dream. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. They
1: they I I was so honored that they named a section of their. Uh, of their children's book area after me the little plaque over there I mean
0: oh um, they, they have, have all those lovely. plaques. that's right it's, it's so, so sweet. lovely it's so yeah sweet. yeah yeah I love that store okay this is sort of our rapid fire round what's the last book you purchased I think you just told us
1: oh my gosh I I mean the last I purchased <laughs> literally I purchased a book <laughs> yesterday what did I purchase yesterday that's a great question. Oh, yes. I purchased a book um, that is from a, a guy named Rubem Alves, who was a, uh, a, a theologian. Um, mm-hmm. And
0: uh, I needed to, it's called The Poet, The Warrior, and The Prophet. Um, okay. I purchased that yesterday. Cool. Um, what's the last book that made you laugh?
1: Laugh, like an actual belly laugh rather than like know. laugh you like... Could-
0: you could laugh in any way that made you laugh if it made you laugh like what is this or like ha, 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 hilarious i don't read many books that make me laugh i, I should i should uh, yeah
1: even though i love okay. to laugh i have i can't remember yeah that's okay what about
0: a book that made you cry wow probably solitary mm. by, by wood fox it. it's literally right above my head right now i, I li- it. it
1: is that is one of the um best books of the last 10 years
0: Mm, okay
1: it's it's I might start that oh my god it is and you know he recently passed he just passed yeah and I I mean seriously Tracy I um just I I I don't even know how to I I read it cried my eyes out but was so freaking hopeful it was Mm. so weird but yeah wait I'm I'm
0: inserting a question that's not normally on the questionnaire for you because I feel like maybe you'll know so I read a lot of like prison memoir, I think that's maybe what you call it, like solitary. And I read a lot of it with this hope that I'm going to really like one one yeah. day. Yeah. But I find that a lot of them are end up being like pro-prison yeah. or like are there any that you can think of that you really love that don't feel Pro prison as a way in terms to of, rehabilitate. Uh, in like there's so many where it's like all this horrible yes. stuff happened to me. And then I went to prison and I found Jesus and I was on good behavior and I left and now I'm a good person and yes. I met Joe Biden. And I, like I <laughs> I hate it so much because it's like the first half of the book, I'll be like, Yes, let's go. Like, come on, you you deserve this story. Like, I want to hear it. And then it's like, then I joined the women's group in the prison. And now I believe the prisons are great. And I'm yes. like, no. No. Yeah,
1: it's not it's hard because those are the books that publishers want to see.
0: Right. And those so, are not the books that I want to see because yes. I don't think
1: that's real. No, and you know what won't be that book is is solitary.
0: Okay. It does okay.
1: not do that at all. And okay. I I think about um yeah, I think about that. I, I also think I, I don't know if you've ever read Soledad Brothers.
0: I haven't, but I have it. I think I actually bought that at Blue Stocking. Yeah. I had kept wanting it and I finally purchased it.
1: It's not a memoir, but it is a book written by an incarcerated person that is deeply well thought through. Um, And, you know... Frankly, the autobiography of Malcolm X is a, yes, is a of prison, course. you know, but yeah. it, and that doesn't do that same, rebuild, do I was rebuilt. Yeah. So yeah, so those are some that I can think of, but I, I'm really curious to see what you think about Solitary. If you, okay, you I'm going to start that. Yeah, I have
0: to read two books in the next few days and then I think that I get, I get free time reading. Oh. I, like, oh, I'm almost done reading for the show for the year. I like to build in that, like, I finish the show so that December I can just do what I want. That's great. Um, That's great. Okay. What about the la- I bet you have a lot of these? What about the last book that made you angry? There's so many
1: books <laughs> I can't even i mean i i'm I'm reading this is my jail right now, and that that's infuriating me to no end and I feel like the books that make me so angry are not the typical books about like how you know um you mentioned um blood in the water and uh like that that kind of book is just like general corruption, like you know what I mean yeah. like just straight up corruption by the state like i'm i expect that like i read it that's right. kind of like the cnn you know what i mean like yeah. if it's the news yeah. <laughs> um, but um but this is my Jill makes me angry because it's the it's the constant reformer bullshit like it's like this person's going to come in and do this thing. And it's like, they're not going to do this thing because cook County jail is a hellhole, And it's 2000, you know, it's 2022 and you're writing about 1968. Like it's just, it exhausts Mm. me. It exhausts me. And I think maybe it's less angry than it is just like deep, profound frustration. Um, Yeah. 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 Those are the kinds of books that really just, I can't, you know, what is a book? What's your
0: problematic favorite book?
1: I read a lot of um, Jane Austen, which I love. Mm, That's where
0: your fiction goes. That's
1: where my fiction goes. Um, I love Austen and there's so much that's problematic about her. And I love her. I, I, I read, you know, when I'm trying to like not think, I read romance novels from like Harlequin. Mm. you know like it's the same <laughs> reason I watch like chill you know Christmas movies on Hallmark you know like I'm yeah. not yeah. trying to think there's no plot I don't have to do character development it's yeah. just nothing but like reading and not even thinking as I'm reading so
0: yeah that's my Grey's Anatomy and Bachelor Bachelor shows yes. that's for me we all need it uh, we all need it for yep. sure especially when you read a lot of like Heavier stuff, like where you have to think, and it like has real consequences. I feel like people like you watch The Bachelor. I'm like, yeah, I have to, I have to.
1: Also, like, (laughs) yes,
0: it's entertaining. I'm sure I don't watch The Bachelor. It is, but like, there's so so bad though. Like they tried to like dabble in race, and I was like, can you not? Don't do that. That's what. Oh my god, I'm like, like, can you not?
1: I don't want black people in Hallmark Channel Christmas movies. People are like, Miriam, stop doing that. I'm like, I like the anthropological. Uh, whiteness of those shows. Yes. Like, I don't want to think about, quote, real life in the Christmas yes. movie.
0: I, that's I'm not here my for point. white mess. I'm here I for white mess. mess. And when your white mess gets on Black people, then I have to start thinking about the implications about for those, the Black woman. I, just just <laughs> let me have
1: my non-thinking. Yeah, anyway.
0: Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Oh, I'm very, very curious about this. What's the book you would assign, only one, to high school students?
1: <laughs> wow. The book that, there are two books. One is The Autobiography of Malcolm X, which radicalized me as a child,
0: as a young book. That was assigned to me in high school and I didn't read it. Oh my God. I read it in college, after I, college. I'm <laughs> telling
1: you, I would assign that book to any young person and tell them to immediately read it. And I know they will be transformed because I, I really, mm-hmm. that book just mm-hmm. stuck with me in such a real way. Yeah. Um, and the other book that I might assign, it's a good question I'm trying to think of, off the top of my head, what would I assign? Probably the June Jordan's poems, Mm. collected works. I I probably would want, I would want them to read that. Nice. Okay.
0: Last one for today. If you could require the current president of the United States, Joseph Robinette Biden, to read one book, what Mm. would it be?
1: That's such an interesting question. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Well, I, this question's really changed since I started doing the show. It used to be Trump and the yes. answers used to be like much more flip, <laughs> you know, it'd be like a how to read book yeah. or like, yeah. you know, yeah. but now I, I like that it's a president that people have to actually consider. Yeah. Seriously. And what, Joe has a lot of things to consider. <laughs>
1: what I want. There's a, there's a, a book that I really appreciated last year or early this year that it's hard all the time with pandemic time, it's just one thing, um, is a book that was written by um, Spencer Ackerman, um, which is called Reign of Terror,
0: which- Mm, I have that too. Yeah,
1: which (laughs) it just, for him, I think because imperialism in the current moment is so un- Kind of we're not, we don't have a robust anti-war movement. We're not in a in a space as a country where we really focus on international uh, implications of what we do domestically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I feel like that book really explodes the quote, what could have happened at 9-11 and after in a way mm. that I don't think more some of the kind of more didactic books that are out there don't do. The book is riveting. It is uh, infuriating. If you want to talk about getting angry, you will be mm. furious, uh, but you will also just be like, what a friggin' waste. What a waste. What could have, what could we have done? When we talk about abolition as a possibility-based mm. vision, as a vision of uh, emancipation and abundance. And we constantly think about like, what could we have done with all those resources all those people that were unnecessarily harmed and killed, all of us are mm. we have not even evaluated how we changed as a people. Like right. what happened to us as people through that time. We haven't been able to even have a reckoning over that yet. And it's right. what, 20 years ago now, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I would I would suggest that book.
0: Oh, my gosh. Okay. Mm -hmm. We're going to let you go today, but you'll be back uh, on November 30th to talk about Prison by Any Other Name. Miriam, thank you so much. This was such a delight. Such a wonderful time.
1: I'm I'm thrilled. I mean, to be able to talk about books for an hour is like a joy.
0: (laughs) Joy. I, I agree. Everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, that does it for us today. Thank you all so much for listening. And of course, thank you to Mariam Kaba for being our guest. Remember to listen to our November 30th book club discussion of Prison by Any Other Name, The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms by Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law. Mariam will be back for that conversation. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stax Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, TheStaxPodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tigirigis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.